one of the family. The family. Dogs are a part of it and at the very heart of it. Nikki Campbell explores this wonderful world with the help of special guests and some other family members. Welcome to One of the Family. What a lineup! Another feature on amazing dogs doing amazing things as we go into the extraordinary world of the guide dog. We'll be hearing from Matthew Bottomley, who is their head of breeding, and a word from Susie Dent, who's a massive supporter of everything they do. Plus, special guest, animal-loving, dog-adoring, deal-making dragon Deborah Meaden. With the other dragons out, Deborah Meaden is playing her cards close to her chest. But she prepares to make an offer. Seven horses, four sheep, four dogs, two cats, 12 chickens, six ducks, two guinea fowl. I think that's it. Well, like the animals she loves so much, my conversation with Deborah roamed free. And I started on pigs. Well, we've actually had several pigs, all rescues. Um, and, uh, and actually, for a while, my husband, who does eat meat, I don't, I've actually stopped eating meat, but my husband, who does eat meat, um, did actually, we grew our own meat, and he quite rightly said, Deborah, if you're going to eat meat, you need to understand what, you know, what happens when you eat meat. Um, and that kind of did it for me, that stopped it. So so I, I very quickly um, got to naming the pigs. And of course, once you've named the pig, you can't, that's it. They have to live with you for the rest of their lives. Tell me about pigs. I don't know pigs. How, how intelligent are they? How responsive are they? How sentient and emotional? Um, they are easily as bright as a dog. Um, so at, they need company. You should never keep a pig on their own. No. They're very clever. They play football. You know, you can, I'm sure you could teach them all sorts of stuff. But, um, you know, I think once I came into direct contact with pigs, I think that's what made me think, I can't, I can't, I can't eat. I cannot any eat that animal. Um, no, they're smart. They play football. Well, they play with balls. They run around. That's that's incredible. Well, they do. And they kind of get, I mean, it's not just that they're accidentally doing it. They get what they're doing. You know, they understand that in, in the same way that our dog, in fact, I'm sure they picked it up quicker than the dogs. You know, the dogs learn that the idea is to go and get the ball and kind of bring it back to you. Pigs were actually kind of shuffling it along and moving it around. And no, it was, it was really clever to watch. You've gone plant-based, have you? I have. I mean, we are omnivores. Well, I think we're omnivores, you know, I'm sure there's lots of arguments about it, but, you know, I've, I listen, I've, I've studied, I've followed chimpanzees, they're, you know, they're omnivores, we are omnivores, so, um, but then we're also evolved on omnivores and we're aware of, of what we eat and the consequences of that and how it is killed. Um, and I therefore also have the right to say, but I don't want to eat meat anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm not even, I don't really want to call myself a vegan because you kind of, I don't want to call myself anything. I just don't want to eat what I don't want to eat. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, but I would, I call myself plant-based. I still eat, we've got chickens, they're rescue. Uh, they're popping eggs out for a pastime. So I will eat those eggs. Um, and also milk. There is a dairy called the ethical dairy. The reason I don't eat dairy, again, the whole thing about milk, you know, the male cows being killed at birth, 
Um, I really, really have a problem with that. So my whole reason to not eat dairy is is ethical. And there is an ethical dairy that raises its calves with its, you know, it just kind of shares the milk with the calves. Um, and really occasionally when I am craving, I will eat ethical dairy cheese. Um, not as a pastime, but, you know, if I'm craving it. I am immediately, I'll be honest with you, I am immediately well disposed towards people who like animals. I think I am a bit of a bigot uh, about people who don't like animals. I mean, you come across a lot of people in business, and I think I think just think it's a judge of character in a sense, because it shows a, a greater emotional bandwidth, a greater bandwidth of compassion. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I do, and I'm afraid I suffer from exactly the same thing, you know, even down to the fact that my cat took a instant dislike to a painter and decorator who I never had back in the house you know I just thought oh okay okay my cat's a very good judge of character um yeah I know I know exactly what you mean um but I of course I believe there is something in it otherwise it wouldn't be like that um but it is a bandwidth thing it's a it's a greater it's a, it's an understanding of life beyond your own you know that i i just think animals listen we share this planet we are animals you know we might call ourselves human but we're animals um we happen to be have have evolved um in a particular whether it's better or not i don't know but we've evolved um to an a, to have a, a capacity of intelligence i mean even the notion of pets i i i struggle with the sort of an ownership piece because we don't really own animals. You know, what we do, we talk about it all the time, um, but we shouldn't own animals. You know, I, I, I very much want to coexist with my animals. You know, I feel like that. I want them to be animals, but I want them to be allowed to behave in a natural way and for me to enjoy that. I don't have to have them. I don't have to have them in the house around me. I get as much joy out of seeing the dogs run across the fields and the cats climbing up the trees and the pigs behaving like pigs. You know, I don't have to cuddle them and own them and put them in a handbag and dress them up. You know, I, I just appreciate... The, the wonders of the, you know, God, that sounds really... No, it's but not. I, it, no, it doesn't. <laughs> but, you know, the, the wonders of the world. You know, <laughs> it, listen, it doesn't sound really. It doesn't sound really in the slightest. It's, I, I completely, and people listening to this will completely know what you mean as well. The chimp thing I was going to say is that, and it's all about the wonders, is that Jane Goodall, for example, she was the first scientist to observe in the wild at all, anywhere, another species, a non-human species, fashioning a tool for a specific purpose, making a tool for a specific purpose, which was to, it was 1963, I think, which was then to put into a, an ant um, thing and, and eat ants. Now, you can, I tell people that, and as I tell people that, I tingle with excitement at how the wonder of it all. And I can't understand how people, when you see chimps, when you see bonobos, when you see gorillas, I can't understand how people don't that their hearts don't melt because mine does well yeah but but it but, but for me it goes it it goes beyond that i mean i, I i'm the same about sharks you know i i I, mm. I i think life is wondrous this planet is wondrous we're wondrous you know we're not doing the best with the wonders that we've got but we're wondrous um so I mean, in, in the same way, I, I spent about uh, I spent a couple of weeks in Tanzania with a with a troop of um, chimps, and uh, and they were the the first troop of chimps that were ever 
um, uh, seen committing premeditated murder. You know, so there's the there's that side as well. You know, there's there's not everything is lovely and fluffy and gambling and go, you know, life's hard, life's tough. You know, and that that is that adds to the wondrousness of it, if that makes sense. You know, it's just like it's real. They're not just fluffy, lovely things to look at. You know, they're living an earthy, hard, tough life. Yeah, but I can look at that through a certain prism, you know, um, the, the homicidal simians, and I can say, well, actually, that's incredible. That is wondrous in its own way because they are intelligent enough. They have the intellectual wherewithal to be able to do that, to be able to plan it, to be able to cooperate. It's, and I'm, I can't believe I'm saying that murder is marvellous, but do you know what I mean? It does show that incredible intelligence that they have mm. um, you know and what do you do in a troop where where you've got a, a really awful leader what do you do you know you, you have to sort it and uh, so yeah it was quite a it was i had no idea they committed murder a premeditated yeah. no idea jane goodall in a talk i saw her give said that she'd observed chimps in the wild of course for for many a long year and when she was talking about motherhood and she saw brilliant mothers she saw indifferent mothers she saw mothers who would help other mothers altruistic mothers and she saw psychopathic mothers and i find that you know she saw psychopaths and i i i think that links us to them far more than we realize because we are the worst of all when people say oh you're behaving like animals i, th I say i wish yeah that's actually that's a bit that will be my response forever from this day i wish absolutely right um but but no you're you're right and i, and I guess in all animals there will you know there's the good and the bad and the or what our view of good and bad is of course in nature, what we consider good and bad might actually be a really, really valuable thing. You know, being able to sort out if you've got a, if you've got a psychopath as a, as a leader, to be able to sort it out. You know, to try and sort it out through the society and and fail and therefore say, look, we're going to have to sort this, or the troop doesn't survive. You know, is that we do overlay our own version of good and bad onto animals. Um, you know, and and uh, and they've got yeah. to survive out there. Imagine having a psychopath as a leader. <laughs> right, well, that might take a different... That might take this whole conversation a different way. <laughs> One of the family. Do you know any psychopaths? I say I know people on the psychopathic spectrum. Yeah? Certain people... You're looking at your sister. Um, no, Kirsty's just... I wouldn't say she's psychopathic. She's just a bit narcissistic. I think mm. that's different. So who is a psychopath that you know? But don't, don't give me the name, but just tell me... What's psychopathic about them and are they at school with you or what? Okay, at my old school there was someone who, let's say, showed psychopathic tendencies, lack of emotion. Is this your podcast? Lack of empathy lack of, for others. Very yeah. lack of empathy was one. Lack of empathy lack of for... Do you know any psychopaths? I do, probably. I can't think of them right now. Do you know any weirdos? Oh my God, trust me, I know so many weirdos. <laughs> That's a different thing. Like, it's good to be a weirdo. Am I a bit of a weirdo? You're the weirdest man I know, I'm not going to yeah. lie. You're, like, a, like, unique, do you know what I mean? In weirdness. You're the acceptable face of weird. You, I think you started in the travel business, didn't you? I did, yeah. A, yeah. yeah. There's a big row at the moment about sort of ethical holidays and elephant tourism out east and dolphin shows. I mean... When I see one of those photographs on, and I discuss this with Ricky Gervais, I've discussed this with Chris Packham, and I know you'll feel the same way because you're very active on social media. When I see one of those pictures of a bear in a dress on a bike or an elephant 
dancing or some idiot riding an elephant or an orangutan dressed up in a with boxing gloves on just as i'm talking to you know i could weep i know absolutely it, it actually makes me feel i i get a proper feeling you know i get it makes me feel slightly sick it, it, in my in my stomach, I, it, and deeply sad. And you know the worst thing about it, Nikki, is that when I go to Africa, which I do with with Tusk quite a bit, and when I go there, the worst thing about it is whenever I see animals in the wild, I'm starting to get the same feeling, because I'm beginning to feel like I don't know how long you're going to be able to live like this, you know. And it's it's a horrible thing to 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 really enjoy being amongst animals and wildlife and that is going now you know I've just got this terrible fear for everything I see every time I see a rhino I think oh please be alive next week you know you see a lion please be alive next week it's just you know it's it's kind of take it, it very rarely other than at home you know at home I get my absolute joy because I don't have to worry about anything they're all having a lovely life um but very rarely do I get to see an animal in the wild now without feeling that sadness Oh God, I so get that. I so completely get that. I can't, I can't even watch Attenborough programs because I, it breaks my heart. I think, look at that beauty and look what we're doing to it. And my wife's saying, well, maybe, you know, for your birthday, whatever, you can, we can all go off and on safari. So I don't want to do that. I don't want to go on safari. My friend was on safari in Tanzania and it's an elephant roaring out of a burning forest. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that stuff. And I know there are places, and there always hopefully will be places that protect that protect animals, but I know exactly what you mean. Um, but I am like it with, with, with sea life as well, you know. I, um, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I, I can remember... Oh, this is pathetic. I don't know if I'm going to... Yes, I am going to say it, because I've started, so I'll have to finish. But I, can, I actually have bought lobster... <laughs> live lobster and put it back in the sea and I know it's going to have been caught five minutes later but I just I just couldn't bear it I just couldn't bear it you know it's 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 just birds in cages lobsters in in you know crammed together in these tanks and you know again it makes me feel deeply sad I'm gonna play snap um I was we were coming down from Scotland to the north of Scotland, to London, driving my wife and I with the dogs in the back. I spent a lot of time up there. And um, this place called House of Brewer, which is great, brilliant place, brilliant spread, clothes and wonderful high quality stuff and great foodstuffs and deli on a massive scale and, and all. I've got a fish and chip shop because everything is just a little bit, you know, um, aspirational. And the fish and chip shop has a lobster tank in it, with lobsters with rubber bands on. Tina said, go get some fish and chips. So I can get some fish and chips. And I know I was tired, but I, 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 this is confession time. I started crying. I had to, I had to leave that place. And she understood. And I was having a shaky, fragile moment. It was just, there were two kids there. And they were saying, oh, look. Oh, and they were sort of laughing. And, and the thing had rubber bands on its glove. I was trying to get out. And they were saying, oh, <laughs> it's trying to get out. It was trying to escape. It was, and I, you have moments like that in your life and, and sometimes you tell other people about them and sometimes they look at you like you're a lunatic and then sometimes you tell other people about them like I'm telling you now and they understand you're like my therapist this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs>
we're meant to be talking about dogs, but we will. Have you turned down anyone on the Dragon's Den who you thought might not be the kind of person who would walk out of a fish and chip shop because of a lobster? Well, I, I, so I've definitely turned down product. They, um, somebody bought in. Do you remember there was a fashion, uh, fad with those little fish that they put you put your feet in a fish tank and fish came and ate all the dead skin. Do you remember that? that, yeah, ugh, I remember that yeah. ugh. Anyway, um, so somebody came in the den with that, and I physically, I, I, you know, it, I yeah, couldn't. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Wait for their pitch to be over to me. Say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That is everything that's wrong with the world. Absolutely no way. I don't care how much money I'm going to make. That I'm. That's it. So I've definitely turned things down like that. But I think I don't know whether I consciously think about the animal thing, but. I guess it's probably in there somewhere because, you know, we all, I respond, I'm quite instinctive with, with my response and I suspect I'm picking up quite a lot of stuff. I wouldn't invest in anybody who is kind of wants to win at all odds, at, at all costs. I don't, I'm not interested in that. You know, I, I want to, I want to do well, but I want to do, my, my doing well isn't just about cash. But behaving well, you know, it's about being able to sleep at night. So I guess it must be in there. I don't physically think about it. What I do know is that um, if you bring a dog into the den, it definitely ups your chances of getting investment. Uh, and there's a businesswoman talking to you. There you go. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great tip. Have there been any fantastic animal ideas that you can remember? Uh, things involved with animals that were actually good? Um, we've had quite a lot of raw food. We actually, I've, uh, my cats were on raw food. So we've had quite a lot of ethical food come into the den. Um, and in fact, I invested in one. The investment didn't go through because they crowdfunded when we came out of the den. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so there's, I, I'm quite, when I first joined Dragon's Den, I was like the green swampy one, you know, nobody quite understood what I was set, you know, why I would go out on certain things. But, you know, I'm pleased to say that the world's kind of moved towards my ethos. So now when things come into there, there's an awful lot more stuff in the den that's really, that's ethical and, you know, and or animal-based and, and the right kind of animal-based. I do actually think that ages ago we had somebody come in, I've only just remembered this, um, who had a business supplying animals to films and TV, and this is, yeah, I think this might be my first or second series, I've just recalled it, and even then, I was like, I'm sorry, I don't care how much money you make, I, I, I can't, I don't like that, <laughs> I'm not, not doing it, you know, it's... it's. Yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio is a great champion of orangutans and, and animals too, and the gorillas in Africa, um, but I think he had a, there was a chimpanzee in one film he made, a movie chimpanzee, and it was, there was he got a lot of grief for that, ah, you know, it's funny unfortunate as well so what what do animals do i'm going to talk about dogs in a minute what do animals do for you and did you when you were a little girl did you have animals and did you grow up loving animals as well? i don't really know where i got it so, so my parents are kind people we never had animals um i bought my first pony 50 pound pony when i was about 12 i think 12 or 13 i literally just bought it and bought it home i mean my, my parents said i couldn't have one so <laughs> so i bought one um and uh and worked to keep it in, you know pay my two pound fifty a week to keep it in a field i mean my parents were i don't know i genuinely have no idea i've got so my my older sister i've got there's four girls my older sister um who i spend an awful lot of time with i actually ride with her most days when i can um and she's she's sort of she likes her animals but she's 
very much more people orientated, you know, and I, I mean, I like my people, but I'm very much more animal orientated. And we live the, we live the same life, you know, I, I don't know where it came from. Um, but it's passion, it's a, I don't know whether you're born with it, but it's an, it's in me, you know, it's, abs- it's been in me since I was tiny. I don't think it happened to me. I think I was born with it. I don't know. And because of COVID, I, I really believe there is an opportunity to reset our relationship with the natural world and with animals. Do you think that might be the case? Well, I think it will be the case amongst certain people. But human, I, I have this thing that when it comes between human and wildlife or human and animals, humans always get what humans want, you know, and, and we say this, but then we've got, covid masks discarded in the ocean in a way that you know um well pp all kind of ppe it's it's it, it so kind of the response to covid we apparently we're going to kill half a million sharks to um for the vaccine apparently we're going to need half a million sharks to create the vaccine and you just think oh there we go again you know we've said one word we're all going to behave differently and now we're we're actually because obviously we're now talking humans are way more human life is way more important than any other life on the planet that it's actually fine to just wade in and take swathes of other wildlife out um and i i just think we say these things and we probably mean these things but then life gets in the way and then we don't do these things and that's it's wrong because we've been given this amazing gift of foresight you know we can see what we're doing we can understand the consequences surely we've been given that to behave better to make ourselves better you know, but when we can see stuff and then we do nothing about it or we, we know what we should do, but we ignore it and we behave a different way. You know, I just think, well, we don't deserve this gift of foresight because we, we're just not using it. And that's why dogs, I believe, are so important, because they give us, if we can only look, a glimpse of the wild, just a little scintilla of the wild. They're domesticated and have been for 30 or 40,000 years, but in there it's we're we're far more remote from it but in there you can see it in dogs you can see that wolf you've got four dogs tell me about your four dogs oh <laughs> they were accidental um no so we had uh hungarian vizslas and um our oldie died so to be honest we didn't have dogs for years because our life just didn't allow it and i think if you can't give a dog a good life then you probably shouldn't have a we well, shouldn't have a dog not probably you shouldn't have a dog um but when it came to the point where Paul was at home all of the time, um, you know, the dogs, they have a lovely life. He's around all of the time. They've got loads of space. So we ended up getting three. And then our first one, you know, the one that we, we our oldie died. And we decided that we would get a rescue from Hungary. They're Vizslas um, and they're being overbred at the moment. They're beautiful dogs. They're very, very popular. But in Hungary, they're literally just breeding them, you know. And if they can find homes for two of them, fine. And the other nine can go out on the streets. So, um, fun, you know, got involved with a charity and, and decided to bring one over. And then, of course, you know, there was another one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so somehow we ended up uh, bringing over two from Hungary. So we've now got two oldies and two young, two young ones. On the sofas, on the beds. Oh, you know how it works. Well, they, you start with rules. Don't you? You no, all right? They're allowed downstairs, but they're not allowed on the sofa. Oh, all right. They're allowed on the sofas, but only when there's a blanket. Oh, oh, all right. They're allowed on the sofas anyway. And you know, so often I see Paul, my husband, sitting right at the end of the sofa. You know, and four dogs crammed in beside him. Yeah, 
Yeah, so you start with the rules and then they just go out the window. The only thing is they're not allowed upstairs because the cats are allowed upstairs and it's the only place the cats can go where the dogs can't go. Life is far too short and fragile and transient not to have a dog on the sofa beside you. Absolutely. One of the family. Good boy. Good boy. Yes, good boy. I saw you talk about medical detection dogs. They featured on this podcast just recently. Oh, did they? But have you been? Have you been to see them work? They asked me the other day. I spoke to Claire Guest about it. Incredible woman, the oh, CEO, if that's the amazing. right thing, of medical detection dog. And I did uh, an edition with Ian Dale and Kay Burley, the journalists, and with Claire, and I called it News Hounds and Nose Hounds. Uh, I, I just thought that was... No-one else has really Brilliant. appreciated that. I, 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 thank you. What a pitch. Well, what a pitch. This podcast is a one-man operation. Well, one family. Production, music, editing. And you know what that means? It means you're a control freak. I do it purely and simply for the love of it. So any feedback means the world to me. It would be great if you subscribed and left a review. There's a drink in it for you. And find us on, well, find me on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at one of the family one. Search and ye shall find. Thank you for your time. Vegan products, are they, is that sector still growing do you think oh it is absolutely more than a fad i think it's more than a fad and i I, because it's moved from being sort of um non-vegan looking food you know like sausages pretend sausages and pretend cheese and pretend bacon it's moved from that into being products of their own right and that then becomes a market because actually even i was a bit like when i first stopped eating meat i was a bit like well i'll just get sausage shaped stuff oh that's not quite a sausage is it once I stopped doing that and realising, actually, there's some fantastic recipes out there and really lovely products and, and, and things that really aren't cheese. Stop trying to pretend to be cheese, but they're lovely, whatever they are. Um, you know, it, it just shows a level of maturity because people are actually not just trying to, to recreate non-vegan food. It's got a life of its own. Absolutely here to stay. And the, and the next generation, you know, they're all over it. They're all over it. They're our hope. I have got four daughters. Three are at university and one is going to do her A-levels. If there are God, I'd say God willing. Tell them, Deborah, what should they do? What sector should they go into? Well, I'm not sure I should because you know what? I didn't plan my life at all. I've ended up doing the thing I love, which is business, because that allows me to do an awful lot of stuff. But I didn't plan and I didn't worry about stuff and I didn't think, what am I going to do and what business is it going to be? I just find something you enjoy. Do loads of stuff. Get loads of stuff wrong and decide which bits you love. What are you passionate about? What do you care about? Because we spend a hell of a lot of our lives working. We really, really should be doing stuff we care about. One of the family. Invest in your dreams. Here's Kirsty Campbell. Deborah is very good at assessing business ideas. What is your ultimate dream? Is this about COVID? No, it's just about what you do because COVID's changing things, certainly in the short term. What you are, whether you should do something that is practical and you think something that would have opportunities in the sense of having a salary, having a wage, or something that you really want to do, following your heart. Yeah, I want to do something that I really want to do. That like, I don't want to like what learn computing, and like those kind of skills. Like the government saying that like oh change up what you want to do. Like no thanks. Um, but yeah, I want to be on the stage. 
In 30 years' time, you'll be 49, yeah? Oh, my God. That's so old. What? I didn't realise. Um, that's yeah. so old, isn't it? Yeah, that's so old. But then I'll just be like an old woman, like to move into those parts. <laughs> yeah. Grannies, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Grannies. I mean, I can give you some. Vegan, absolutely. A lot of the online stuff, absolutely. I think there'll be a lot of, of um, uh, the proper jobs around environmentalism, obviously. Um, but just you'll feel what you love. And if you love it, you'll be going to be blinking good at it, you know, and you'll stick at it. Listen, thank you. I've wanted to speak to you for ages because I, I know that uh, we think alike in so many ways. Oh, that was lovely. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Talk about my favourite topic. What a great woman, Deborah Meaden. Let's go from the den of dragons to the world of guide dogs. Guidedogs.org.uk. Matthew Bottomley is their head of breeding. Obviously, we put some romantic music on, we dim the lights, we pop some flowers in the corner. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that, of course. There's, um, there's the science behind it. So, you know, it isn't a, a finger in the air. Um, when we choose a male with a female, we're looking at their pedigree, their family tree. We're looking back through their ancestry. We're looking at all the relative virtues of both. Uh, we nowadays we use population genetics so we look at all the aspects of uh, as I say the relative virtues of both in terms of temperament and health and of course if the individuals have produced puppies already we look at those too and we look at their litter mates uh, brothers and sisters so we're we're trying to make sure that we capture as much information as we can to make the most sensible partnerships that we can. Temperament is all important. Yeah temperament is um, is key obviously in our line of work. Why Labradors? I think they, they encompass and embody that, that phrase, really good all-rounders. They're, they're just, um, they're wonderfully affable and friendly, as we all know, the typical Labrador. Um, they have that, that beautiful temperament that, that's friendly to all. Um, but they have a good level of willingness to do the job. They're very keen to please their handlers. Um, so the people they're working with, they're very, very keen to, and we couldn't do our work and we wouldn't do our work if we weren't working with um, dogs that were, were actually enjoying their work. It's key to, to the way we train our dogs. and We do that very positively. Um, we, of course, treat all our dogs as individuals, as I'm sure. Uh, anyone that might be listening to your po podcast would do similarly. Um, so there will be variations, but in general terms, yeah, they tend to be very, as I say, very resilient. Maxwell's groan of ecstasy. And what about the notorious Labrador trait for eating anything it sees? <laughs> how do you manage to how do you manage to train that out of them? Because if you're a blind or partially sighted person going on the street. And then the other side of the pavement, a discarded bun is spotted. Now, this discarded bun is the bane of many a Labrador's, <laughs> a Labrador owner's life. How do you stop that obsession? So we try to use very positive um, reinforcement techniques. And um, we will. I've seen dogs now working where they really learn self-control. So they'll... Um, 
They'll know that through um, positive reward by getting to the other end. So, for example, I've seen a dog working through a, a course. It was a, an artificial course that we set up, but the, the trainers were working them through the course. And there was food on the ground, like you were describing, like a bun, for example. And you can see, you can actually see the dog sees the food. The natural instinct is to go grab the food, but it controls it. Has a level of um, self-control because it knows that when it gets to its destination at the other end, it will be rewarded very often with a treat, um, but a treat from its daily food intake and a carefully controlled treat. So with with um, continued and regular training like that, using using positive reinforcement, we effectively um, teach the dogs that level of self-control, knowing that they will get um, a reward at the other end. And of course, the other reward is, is that working with the handler and the praise that they get um, for, for not going for the, for the chocolate bun or whatever it may mm. be. Can I send Maxwell to your centre to be trained? <laughs> yeah, it would be a pleasure. I think he's um, too far down the road full of buns. <laughs> so what is the working lifespan so the, the, the process is that um, they, they go into training at around 14 months. And normally speaking, they would be paired and matched with, with someone with sight loss um, approaching their, their second year, usually sooner than that, to be honest. So maybe even any time from 18 months onwards. Um, and how long do they work? Well, it, it varies from dog to dog and breed to breed. But average working life is, is in the region of seven years. Um, they would normally be retired probably by the age of nine, certainly by 10. And then what happens to them? Can you imagine the attachment that someone with sight loss, loss has with a guide dog that is providing them that freedom and that independence um, and that ability to get out and about and lead the lives they want to lead, lead without needing to rely on someone else so i think when they're so attached it's uh, it's more than likely that most of our service users will um, retain their dog so when the dog retires they stay within the same family of course for some that provides a challenge because they want their new guide dog and um and that's their mobility aid frankly that's their ability to get out and about and integrate with their friends and society in general um, so for some, it's, uh, it's fine. They keep their, their old dog and they bring the new dog in and, and obviously will support them through that process. For some, it's less practical um, and it's not easy for them to retain their, their old dog. And of course, if that is the situation, we support them through that and offer them the opportunity of if they want to um, rehome the dog with members of their family or friends, then we can support them through that. And if all those things don't work out for them, then we have a rehoming service. So we have a team of rehoming officers that will um, find the best and most appropriate home for that dog and enable them to keep in contact with them. The dogs seem to have such an empathy with the blind or partially sighted person. I've seen incredible bonds. Just that they're kind of moving as one. And the dog almost seems to yeah. understand what it's about and what they're required to do and is this a step too far why they're required to do it uh, it's an interesting one isn't it and it's, it's one you could have a debate with uh, over for, for many hours I'm sure but um, I agree with you I've, I've had the privilege of, of training as I say training um, many guide dogs and and seeing the work that they do and the difference they make to people's lives when uh, when they're actually working um, the sense of freedom that they've had um, do the dogs know? I, I, I certainly know that there are dogs that 
instinctively know to get out of the way when someone who has no sight and is moving around a room, they, they, they know that they need to move out of the way. They don't operate perhaps in the same way as a, a sighted person does. So I've certainly seen dogs, um, that, but whether that's a learnt behaviour that they uh, perhaps having been um, accidentally kicked or, or trodden on, they've, they've learnt to, to, to move out of the way and, and uh, avoid those situations. But going back to your point about the empathy, I mean, that's that's the, the real key. And certainly the work that we are involved in is it's all about trust. And it's very hard for some people to put their trust in a dog. Um, we all love our dogs. But to, if you imagine actually putting your trust in in a, a dog to guide you through a busy high street, uh, to cross over roads, to uh, negotiate obstacles, to take you, as I say, from A to B as safely as, as they possibly can, takes an awful lot of trust on behalf of the handler. And once they give of that trust, they get the reward back from the dog. And I think that's what strengthens that bond. How does the dog get maximum exercise? Because Labradors have to run and run and run and fetch and run back and stretch themselves. And they need quite a lot of a runabout. Yeah, it's a good question. On average, we would suggest that probably only 5% of their time as a guide dog is actually working. 95% of the time is actually just being a well-behaved, well-socialized um, pet dog, well-trained pet dog. So they, uh, every every blind and partially sighted person has a responsibility, um, and we take that very seriously to look after our dogs, to make sure that they are well exercised, that their health and welfare is um, absolutely paramount. And we we've, we've got all the support structures in place to to make sure that they, if they have questions or need that that help, that we're there to to do so. Wonderful. And that's the aspiration of this organization to help as many people as we can that are disadvantaged through sight loss to to actually get out there and live the lives that they wish to lead matthew bottomley and here is susie dent why do i love guide dogs well they're there essentially to help the two million i think it is people living with sight loss helping them live the life they choose uh, children and adults friends and family um, and they're there to help people affected by sight loss live actively live independently and live well really it's been really tricky uh, they will know firsthand how Loneliness and isolation can really impact people living with sight loss um, as well, yeah, really acutely. And the dogs, Nikki, what can you say? I mean, they are the most amazing creatures. They do so much good. And I only learned very recently, I think I mentioned to you when we last spoke, that you're not really supposed to cuddle a guide dog when they're in service, nor are you supposed to feed them treats. And I've been guilty of both, because how can you not cuddle a guide dog? I find it almost impossible. They are wonderful. So guide dogs are the most amazing charity. I can't recommend them more highly. They are top of my list when it comes to helping out. Yeah, they do the most amazing good. Thank you for listening to One of the Family. (laughs) 